I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are once again back in the TARDIS celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who, and we've made it to the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, who at the time was the youngest actor to ever play the Doctor. Now, he is still the youngest actor to ever play the Doctor for the classic series. He was 29 years old to the day. On his 29th birthday was when they started filming uh, his episodes. It would take a very long time, but uh, he would then get uh, the, the actual youngest actor to ever play the Doctor in the entire series would end up being Matt Smith, who was 26 years old when he filmed his first episode. Uh, as much as I respect Peter Davison, as much as I do, uh, as I said previously, Matt Smith really got that old man in a young man's body vibe down a lot better. Again, all due respect to Peter Davison, but yeah. Peter Davison really got the rejuvenated adventurer. Weirdly, or maybe not weirdly, considering what happened, if you're comparing uh, classic Doctor Who actors to revamped, you know, modern series Doctor Who actors, there is basically one actor that uh, Peter reminds me of. His son-in-law? His son-in-law, David Tennant, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of the accurate one because David said that Peter was basically his doctor. They did a whole episode, well, a mini episode about that. Yeah. Um, time and, crash, yeah. Yeah, time crash. And uh, so this, and it's it's actually, um, you know, this would have been right at the sweet spot for given given David Tennant's age th this would have been the sweet spot for when he was growing up he would have been right in the age range for this to have really been probably his not his first doctor but the formative years doctor mm. um that was on TV a little a little too young for us mm -hmm. given our ages this is 19, 1984. So 1981 to 1984, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so a little too young for us, but uh, right in right in that age range for for David Tennant to have seen. So uh, interesting the way the way life works out for people. David Tennant, the ultimate Whovian. Not only did he get to play the Doctor, <laughs> but he's now. Related to the doctor through marriage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Georgia Tennant or uh, Peter's, Peter Davis's daughter. Yeah. Who um, is uh, David Tennant's wife. <laughs> then, of course, there's a third generation now with at least two of their children. 
who have gone into acting. Uh, so don't know how many of the others will will follow suit, but at least two of them so far have decided to take up the profession to some degree. Um, one Ty, of them looks, Ty looks like he's going to, he's in his adulthood now, so that looks like it's going to be his permanent profession. One of their daughters is at least doing it, you know, in her childhood. We don't know if she'll continue as an adult. So at least two of uh, Peter Davison's grandchildren are uh, following in the in the family tradition there. Um, because is he going like to be like the 19th doctor? <laughs> um, I'm sure that Ty probably would uh, enjoy. Uh, he, he is said to be a Doctor Who fan himself, uh, from what I hear. So I think that uh, Ty would probably like to continue the family tradition of being in Doctor Who. Uh, because, of course, his mother was as well. Uh, that's how... Georgia and David met was on the set of Doctor Who when Georgia she was, was Jenny, Jenny the Doctor's yeah. daughter. So uh, there, there may be a possibility one day, um, if if he would like and if the show would like. But uh, I don't, I don't know about the the others. Uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of interesting the the sort of familial dynasty that has, has popped up behind the scenes of uh from peter davison who is said to still you know he he still liked the show but his time on the show was a bit fraught yeah i mean he just came off of the most popular doctor of the classic era following tom baker like how do, i mean how do you follow that up baker was the doctor for seven years, there's an entire generation who grew up only knowing Tom Baker as the doctor. So it, it was already, it, you know, it was already an uphill battle for, for Davison. Yeah. And the thing is, is that Peter Davison was already known to the British public because he had been on the TV series All Creatures Great and Small before he was on Doctor who and the original 70s version there is a modern remake now that is currently running uh both in the uk and in america um that is a, a modern update not modern in the the sense that they've brought it into the modern time but uh done with young actors now you know they're retelling the same story you know, in the in the original series that they did, um, Peter Davison had gained, you know, some pretty decent fame. I know that uh, my father told me he loved those books uh, and had read them and then loved that series. And that's how he knew Peter Davison originally. And then he also watched Doctor Who and saw Peter Davison's run on Doctor Who. They went with an actor that was already known to the public so that they could get over the hump of everybody being sad about Tom Baker leaving and also everybody being, 
you know, mildly confused about, okay, the doctor is a very young man now. And I get what they were trying to do because we've had, you know, I mean, going back to the first doctor, William Hartnell, elder statesman doctors, doctors that were in their 40s, 50s, what have you. Even Tom Baker was in his 40s when he did the role. So to have a, a young man in his 20s doing the role, I could see that being more of, of, of a shock. It's, plus, they took the young man aspect a little too too much because, again, he's wearing a cricket outfit because, you know, he's got to be young and athletic. But also, he's not as... Again, this is all apologies. I know this is not Peter Davidson's fault. It's the way he was written. Not as assertive in certain stories as his predecessors. Yeah. He seems in some of them to be a bit less sure of his own intelligence in a way. You know, yeah. the, the doctor was extremely from the out, outset extremely cocky he was the smartest man in the room and he wanted you to know it and even you know there's there's a great moment in this serial that it's written on paper in in the style of the doctor where a character says to the doctor you might almost be as smart as me and as much as I do love Peter Davison, and I really do, I've seen him in so many things and I love him every time. When he looks at Perry and says, you know, did you hear that? Almost as smart as me, you know, what cheek or, you know, however he delivers that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come with the same, like, insult and hubris that you feel the other doctors would have. And that's at the end of his run. I mean, this is literally his last serial that we're talking about here today. Yep, The Caves of Androzani, which is considered by many to be the best or up or uh, it's always at the top or near the top of the best fifth Doctor stories. Doctor Who magazine in uh, 2009 did a poll and it, this was voted as the greatest story of the classic era. Is it? We will have that discussion in a moment. Uh, Peter Davison certainly thinks it is because he has said repeatedly that this was his favorite story he ever did during his run. And that if he had had more stories like this on his run, he probably wouldn't have left so quickly. And which is why we're doing this, because this is considered so highly among not only the Doctor Who fans, but the Doctor himself, Peter Davison. On that, let's pick up where we left off. So, yeah, we left off with the fourth Doctor at this point. Well, Legopolis happens, he dies, he changes into our fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, and then he travels with Nyssa and Tegan and Edric and a robot named chameleon and they all go away but at this point we're 20 years into the series season 21 and we have a brand new companion in her second ever story perry 
played by Nicola Bryant and her cleavage. This is not me being a pervert. I mean, every scene, every outfit they have Nicola Bryant wear in her time as the, in, in Doctor Who is showing off her cleavage. This, okay. is, for the, this is for the dads, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no or disrespect. The, or no the dis- slightly older uh, fan base that was watching. Because at this point, like like we said last time with with the Tom Baker stuff, they were getting to the point where they kind of understood that people that had started watching with Hartnell were starting to get a little bit older and they weren't aging out of a kid's show like they should be. Yeah, like I said, this is this is season 21. The show has been on the air for 21 years. So if you were a child. When you watched Hartnell, you're already pushing 30 at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been on since the late 60s. You know, we're we're in the 80s now. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, we're starting to get to that point where you've grown up with Doctor Who literally for at some this, people. Yeah, at this point, people who, who were with people who were watching in the Hartnell years have children of their own. Uh, Davison himself grew up watching Doctor Who. You know, he considered working with Patrick Troughton back when they did the the Five Doctors. He considered it a great honor because he grew up watching Patrick Troughton. I, I'm going to tell you a funny story about uh, Perry. I we're we're in the era of Doctor Who right now where I know the least. I've seen some of the Fifth Doctor serials but honestly i had never really seen this one except for the uh regeneration scene at the end Mm -hmm. so i had never watched this one all the way through neither have i so this was sort of a first viewing for me as well yeah um and i don't know why it had just i had never gotten around to it um this is a 60 year long show Y'all, I have not seen all of it. The thing is, is I sat down to watch this and, you know, I I don't really know anything about Perry. And she comes on the screen and she starts talking and I went, oh, what planet is she supposed to be from? And I looked it up and I see that her full name is supposed to be Perpigillium Brown. And I thought, oh, what planet is she supposed to be from? And then she's supposed to be from Fells Point, Baltimore, Maryland. And I thought, no, she isn't. Okay, so we we, we do need to back up here because, yeah, <laughs> they really wanted an American companion for this doctor. And they had, they had uh, auditioned American actors that were in... England at the time. Here comes Nicola Bryant doing an American accent. And they decided she's the one that sounds the most American. We are going to make her our American companion for this doctor, not realizing that she was putting on an accent. And I'm guessing no one in this room had ever met an American before. Because, because right, holy crap. I don't know what accent she was doing in this episode, 
but it was not an American accent. This is nothing against Nicola Bryant. I have seen Nicola Bryant in other things. I've heard Nicola Bryant in her natural accent. I mean, we've we've we've, we've talked in other things how hard it is for actors to act with an accent. Sometimes yeah, it works, I mean, sometimes it doesn't. Nothing there there are really like two maybe three non-Americans that I have ever heard absolutely just 100% nail an American accent to the point where I'm like, okay, you got it. And if I didn't know better, you would absolutely fool me. I've never heard that falter. Probably the best at it from a British standpoint is Hugh Laurie. Oh, yeah. Hugh Laurie's American accent is so flawless. I'm thinking he made a deal with some supernatural being to pull that off. Because if I didn't know who Hugh Laurie was when I first heard that, I would have absolutely been shocked to find out he was British. I first saw Hugh Laurie in house, and if you had told me he, he was British, I wouldn't believe you till I heard the interviews. Yeah, I mean, so that is is absolutely just the the pinnacle I think of of British person who nailed that. Um but there are very few people who have ever I think just truly flawlessly nailed it. When I first heard Perry, you know, Nicola Bryant speaking as Perry in this episode I thought, is she, is she maybe supposed to be, like, from New Zealand? No, wait, is she supposed to be from some form of, you know, a planet that we're not sure of or something? And then I looked up the, the name, and I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And then I looked up that it was supposed to mean, like, one who dwells in the mountains or something like that and i was like okay but what language is that supposed to be and then they were like oh they never said the language so i'm assuming that like somebody on the writing staff was like oh she's supposed to be american and like she's named for some like native tribe that lived on the you know whatever and it's like but what native tribe oh who knows who cares you know they've just got we're a British. lot of tribes that were over there when we went over there and you know like genocided all of them like <laughs> we're british like, we don't really care what what americans think yeah it's like nobody in america watches this show anyway we can do whatever we want like i don't know they say, but it's... They say after they're airing their 20th anniversaries episode on pbs before it aired on the bbc yeah i mean it's it's so weird, but I don't know. It was it was such a strange thing for me to go like, who who let this happen? I, I know there's not like a bunch of Americans working on Doctor Who at the time, and there still aren't. And I'm not saying that there ever really should be. I want this to remain a British show. As an American, I desperately need this to remain like a pretty much entirely British show. Like, 
And we've seen other episodes. John Barrowman is the closest that I need an American to getting to this show. You know, like, or, or, well, 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 we, we, we just said that Jinx Monsoon is going to have a part on this show. Like, I'm okay with that. But like, can we please have as few Americans as possible on Doctor Who, okay? And we've had other actors on Doctor Who do an American accent, and they were not good. But Including, it's kind of the charm of it too. But I, I all love to Nicola Bryant, who, like you said, I have seen in other things. She is a fine actress, but they needed to get her a dialect coach. And the fact that they did not want anybody to know she wasn't American to the point of making her talk to her other cast members in that American accent and not tell anybody she was from England in order to like, not upset the little kitties or whatever. Like just get the poor girl a dialogue coach, you know, it just reminds me of like, Young Andrew Garfield in Doctor Who doing that New York accent, and then just a few years later being Spider-Man. And oh, a world yeah, of the, difference. The, the difference that, like... But, but the thing is, is that Andrew Garfield was born in America, though. Hmm. He was just not that particularly great at that, like, one particular dialect. But when he did the modern, he was trying to do the, the like, older, like, Newsies kind of dialect. <laughs> and when he tried to do that, it wasn't, he was still really young and learning. And when he tried to do that, you know, but when he got on the big budget one and they actually got him a dialect coach, this is why dialect coaches are so important. Uh, then he nails it, you know, <laughs> and it's fine. But it's like, he was born in America, he lived in America, yes, he's English, yes, his, his you know, primary voice is, because he was raised mostly in England, but like, okay, but you get him back there, you work with a dialect coach, you know, he's okay, he's a good actor, you know, I think the same would have been fine with Nicola Bryant if they had just let her admit, like, Yes, I'm an English actress. I have a dialect coach. I am playing an American. <laughs> or just hire an American. If But, again, she did the entire Well, interview. they were trying to do that. They just didn't realize she was an, she was an American because apparently nobody knew what an American sounded like or checked her resume or, like, documents before hiring her. I don't know. And yeah, because like within the first five minutes, her accent slips like ten times. Yeah, I don't know where she was trying to sound like she was from, but it it wasn't Baltimore. <laughs> we we have a good friend from Baltimore. Doesn't sound like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's a minor thing, but you know, I, I'm a linguist and I have to mention it. And- uh. Again, this is a regeneration episode. So we haven't done, we've done different kinds of episodes, but we have not done a regeneration episode. The differences between this kind of regeneration episode and the modern regeneration episodes, this one is dark. Like this is, 
like when you watch a Doctor Who episode, you go in there and you are expected to at least have fun with these characters that you're watching. There is no fun in this episode. And it's like designed to be. Well, the thing is, is that now regeneration episodes are massive, big deals. These are events. These are a celebration of the entire era of this one doctor. But that's what, you know, modern since since Tenet, you know, Tenet, Smith, you know, all of them. It, it was too for Eccleston, you know. His one season. Uh, they, they, well, but they set up the season finale. Mm. You know, he he said he would come in for the one season. He didn't want to stay too long, you know. So they set up the, the end of the season. They brought in Tennant. And then when Tennant stayed, you know, they when he finally decided to leave, they made it a huge event, you know. But, like, even when we, even at the end of that first you know, revival season when Eccleston regenerated, you, it still felt like a big deal, you know? Because mm-hmm. it was the big season finale. It was the, you know. This is not but, even the season finale. Yeah, it's just kind of in the middle of the season. I mean, it's near the end of the season, yeah, but it's it's kind of the, the just kind There's- of in the middle there. Yeah, this, there's still one one more story after this with with uh, with Colin Baker, which they haven't done since really the first Doctor, because when Hartnell left, that was in the middle of the season. Troughton took over in the middle of a season. Well, that was more due to Hartnell's health issues than you know anything they had planned, because he'd been mm-hmm. having trouble actually being on set. Mm-hmm. We, I think they would have probably. That. Yeah, I mean, I think they would have probably waited for a break in their planned seasons uh, if they could have. But he he was fading fast there uh, for what he could do and and lines he could remember and and stuff. And by this point in the series where we're at, at Caves, he had already passed away. Yeah. Um, But the, the thing is, though, is that it was really interesting because not only is this the first regeneration story we're we're doing, but it was the first regeneration story for the writer of this episode. We've already talked about one of one of his stories because um, he wrote at least part of Terror of the Autons. Uh, but this story was written by uh, Robert Holmes, who had done quite a lot of uh, Doctor Who by this point. Considered um, one considered one of the best writers of the classic era. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, Peter Davison thought that it was awesome that Robert Holmes was going to be brought on to, um, to write his regeneration script. But this was the first time that Robert Holmes had been given the chance to write a regeneration script. So he took it really seriously and kind of put everything into it. Since you're mentioning behind the scenes stuff, we knew this era, we need to talk about him. The final showrunner of the classic era, John Nathan Turner, started with uh, Baker's last season, 
was showrunner to the end. Some people like him, some people loathe him, but shout out to John Nathan Turner. Yeah, I mean, kept the show going until, you know, the end, the, the through, end there. Through, but, uh, through an almost cancellation during the, the next era we'll, we'll, we'll talk about next time. And yeah, he kept this show together when the BBC no longer wanted it. And again, we'll go into more detail about that when we talk about Colin Baker's era. But uh, yeah, shout out John Nathan Turner. Uh, interestingly, one of the shows he he worked on included uh, All Creatures Great and Small that Peter Davison was on. So he oh. had already worked with Peter Davison before they both worked together on uh, Doctor Who. The thing about this serial uh, is we have to talk about one other kind of weird behind-the-scenes thing and that we sometimes talk about somewhere out there in the multiverse is what could have been. <laughs> oh, he's going to bring that up. I was going to bring it up, but go ahead. Yeah, so... Um, Doctor Who has always tried to get uh, guest stars of note when they could. And earlier on in their run, they were the low-budget show. But like we said, this is, you know, roughly 20 years into the run. And they had some clout, and some people had grown up watching it, and it had a lot of notable fans by this point. And this does have, uh, as their kind of main villain, a, a relatively notable uh, actor and uh, former ballet dancer playing our, our villain here in uh, Christopher Gable. But John Nathan Turner, who we just talked about, wanted just kind of in Doctor Who in general, he wanted to draw bigger names. Now, in the reboot series, they get big names. I mean, we've had some some pretty major stars come through the reboot series. Uh, because there are a lot of famous people who are just huge fans of Doctor Who by this point. Uh, so, everybody really just wants to be <laughs> at least some small part on Doctor Who. However, uh, at the time, the person that John Nathan Turner really wanted to play uh, Jack, the main villain here, was apparently David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we've we kind of mentioned that in passing before that David Bowie was a fan, and there was multiple attempts to get him onto the show. He almost played the Doctor. He almost played the Eighth Doctor, and we will get to that when we get to the Eighth Doctor. I think there was talk at one point of trying to get him to play the Master. He was also in the running to play the War Doctor. And there were multiple times I think they wanted him to just kind of... Uh, play him himself maybe kind of in the like of like 
the doctor just meets Bowie or something. Make him the actual <laughs> star man. Yeah. Um, that would be a funny episode where they meet David Bowie and you found out he's actually an alien. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's kind of the premise of Velvet Goldmine, honestly, but, uh, the, um, the, the thing is, is that this happened to be being filmed at the same time that Bowie was on his series Moonlight Tour in the 80s, and that did not work out, <laughs> just timing-wise. The character um, of Jack would have to be radically different for Bowie to play him because if you want someone on the level of David Bowie, why would you put him in a mask? Because the character of Jack, he's got this gimp mask on. Would you really want to cover up Bowie's face so you don't see him for a majority of this serial? I don't think so. I mean, I personally wouldn't, but um, the the interesting thing about Bowie was he was always down for basically anything um so i think he probably would have done it the thing is is that they they also approached uh mick jagger for the same mick, character mick jagger would not put a mask on i can tell you that he's just no maybe a i mean he, he or probably something. should but yeah. uh the uh uh, but also, um, Tim Curry, I think, was another choice that they... Another almost doctor, another almost master. Yeah. Um, Tim Curry, incredible, and man... What... I think we said it on, on the show before, but I, I do want to go to the universe where David Bowie was the eighth doctor and Tim Curry was the master. <laughs> I mean, that would that would have been incredible. But, you know, uh, for whatever reason, all of those people either declined or had scheduling conflicts, uh, and we ended up with Christopher Gable, who is good in the part. I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking him at all. Um, I am not sure I would have wanted any of the other people to have played this role. I think Christopher Gable was really good in this role. I would have liked to have seen some subset of those other people in different roles in Doctor Who. Mm. I believe. I, I think I, I'm not sure they would have been correct for this role, but I think they would have been correct for other roles. Let's let's kind of talk about Jack since we brought him up as a character. So Jack's whole thing is that he used to work with Morgus, who is, our, who is our other villain. Basically, anyone who's not the Doctor or Perry is a villain in, in this story. That's, that's Yeah, real. this who... is a villain-heavy story. So we have Morgus, and they're shippers of a drug called Spectrox, which is known to slow the aging process of the body. You can remain young and beautiful forever. But uh, Morgus cheats out Zek and uh, puts him in his, uh, on the planet Androzani Minor, which most of this uh, serial takes place on. They have these mud bursts. That's why the planet has not been colonized. Like these, there are these explosions that happen at various points 
during the day. So uh, Jack is involved in one of these mud blasts and it burns him alive. Very, someone once said, uh, I read one review of this that said it's very Phantom of the Opera-ish and like OG Phantom of the Opera-ish. Like this is four years before the Weber musical. So like before all of that, like Phantom of the Paradise had come out 10 years prior. So it's very similar to that variation of the story, if that makes sense to anyone. Well, I think Jack gets more Phantom of the Opera in the fact that he lives underground. He has a disfigurement on his face from, you know, some prior tragic event. He wears a mask and he meets our female protagonist and immediately becomes obsessed with her and tries to get her to stay with him uh, despite her wishes. And yeah, when he starts flirting with her and stroking her and caressing her and the absolute terror on Perry's face as this is happening, kudos to Nicola Bryant on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very well acted, the the thing between the two of them, because we find out that one of the things Jack is doing is kidnapping people and replacing them with Android copies because he's just lonely down there. He's trying to control the supply of this drug from getting to the to the world above because he hates the other person in the story the uh morgus and uh because he's sequestered himself down there out of this sense of revenge he doesn't have any friends he just has these this army of mute robots and so he keeps kidnapping people to be his companions (laughs) for lack of a better word well, they're definitely yeah. not friends because we meet the person that's been down there. And he says, now that he has you, meaning the doctor and Perry, he's going to kill me because he has no use for me. So you have a feeling that he's kind of been doing this, like kidnapping people. And then once he gets a new person to kidnap, he's sick of the other person. And so he'll just kill them. It's a hell of his own making because the only reason he's trapped down there in the caves is because he's mad at Morgus over what transpired between them. You know, I mean, it's like he could have left the planet and just gone anywhere else probably. Mm -hmm. But he's there because he wants he he wants more, he even says he wants Morgus's head on his lap. But it's It's also that Morgus is a really powerful businessman, so shout out to the bad guy being a businessman. To the point where he has has the president of Andrazani Major on speed dial. And eventually just kills the dude. So yeah, when you're that much of a rich mogul that that you have a personal call line to the president of an entire planet... I believe he says he's also, like, ahead of one of the councils of the planet. 
because of his wealth and influence? I mean, we wouldn't know what it's like to live in a country where rich people can just call up the president and get a meeting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The thing about it is that because Morgus is so rich and powerful on that level, Jack, when he is injured, he has no recourse. It's not like there's a court that's going to punish Morgus. It's not like he's going to be able to get to Morgus because Morgus has this whole army at his disposal that we see. That's mining the case for the drug. Yeah. So Jack has no recourse except to use his own brain and build these robots. And he tells the doctor later that robotics was not his original method of study. He was a doctor before he literally broke bad. Yeah. Um, So Breaking Bad, Doctor Who style. Um, we gotta cook, Perry. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, is that he created these androids to harvest this drug because if you touch the pure form, then it will kill you. Which is what happens to Perry and the doctor. I just love, we've often talked about the bad special effects or goofs that end up on Classic Who sometimes. And I just love that they go into the cave and immediately the companion just like wanders off a cliff. Um, Doctor Who companions aren't that bright. Uh, um, But, so Perry just, like, you know, takes a right turn and just walks off a cliff because apparently she can't see two feet in front of her. Despite them saying that the cave is very well lit because of, like, some kind of uh, bioluminescent something all over the cave walls. I just love, like, that that the response that you clearly, you know, the doctor clearly hears Perry scream and says, don't fall. (laughs) Yeah. Like he's not um, looking at her. He's just exploring the cave like, don't fall, Perry. Yeah. Um, it's one thing that I will give Peter Davison in this is that the Doctor is hilarious. The thing is, though, is that the goof that kind of ends up on screen is that she, you know, she just wanders away and plummets right off a cliff. But she falls out of screen, and then just half a second later, you see the crash mat bounce up in the camera frame. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> From where, yeah, you can you can see it bounce up. Uh, and so that was, that was funny to me. Um, but she falls into just like a big pile of this stuff that they're harvesting, and when the doctor goes to get her out of it, he also touches it and therefore they're both going to die unless they get the cure, which people say doesn't exist, but it actually does exist because of course it does. But speaking of the doctor being funny, uh, the, the opening scene when they enter the caves is, has maybe my favorite joke from the entire serial when they turn the corner and they find an abandoned camp from where the soldiers just were and Perry says 
I thought you said nobody lived down here. And the doctor says, oh, well, obviously I was wrong. Look, the dice are still warm. <laughs> Reminds me of the joke from uh, Young Frankenstein, where the, the violin, it's still warm. <laughs> Yeah, I I just I just love that. I was like, what a what a great joke! And Peter Davison just nails that delivery. Like, <laughs> it's just so uh, perfectly serious. <laughs> so yeah, the the reason these caves exist is because Androzani Minor has these giant bat creatures that make these nests, and these nests are what this are the source. Of the drug. Touching the raw material. Of whatever this nest is. Or this. Waste. The Would this be guano? I don't know. Yeah we don't. We don't know exactly what the nests. Are made out of. Or what it is they produce. That is. Yeah. But. All we know is that if you. The raw version will kill you. But so it has to be. It has to be refined. And then it becomes the drug. That keeps you young forever. And if you trust the raw version, you are going to die. They say you have three days to live. And the only cure is milk from the Bat Queen. And no one can get to it because the bats, after finding that the humans have started mining their caves, have burrowed all the way down to the far, far below, where there will be no oxygen, which is why no one has gone down there. Which is why the only way to go down there is with an android. Yeah, and uh, they say, well, you know, it's it's going to, you know, you can't go down there. And the doctor says, like, oh, you know, I can go without oxygen for several minutes or whatever. Which I think is, you know, one of the one of the earlier nods to the doctor's redundant you know, lung system. His lungs are bigger on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Because um, there's more of them. Um, but, yeah. So, uh, they're, they're thinking normal human can't survive that, but, of course, Time Lord, so the doctor could probably survive it and, and go get it. Um, so, at least there's hope, but, you know, they have to go get it in time, and that's the problem because giant bat monsters and also two warring factions, and now we've got Jack, who's got a creepy crush on Perry. Yeah. I will give this thing credit, is that they, you get a lot of Doctor lore in this one. Especially, we get an explanation for the celery. I don't know. I mean, if it's, get it's one not in, a in, great explanation, but it is an attempt at an explanation. Like there's like that, but like like this, his second adventure, he sees a celery on a table of fruits and vegetables that they're at a banquet, and he just puts it on his lapel, and there it is. We don't know why it's there, and then in this one, he got he says that. He is allergic to certain gases that can appear in certain atmospheres, and that's why he wears the celery. That if the, that if those certain gases are in the atmosphere, the celery turns purple 
and it's it's a warning for him to get the hell out of there. Well, then what do you do with the celery? I eat the celery. I don't know if you should eat purple celery, but okay. And also he uses it later in the episode as like a smelling salts kind of thing to bring Perry around. Apparently it has healing properties for Time Lords. That smelling celery will heal certain ailments in Time Lords, but it does not heal those ailments for humans. I mean, the thing is, is that celery could probably be used as smelling salts because celery smells awful, especially for fresh cut celery. So we don't know how long that celery has been on there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know if he replaces it with like a fresh stalk every day because that celery always looks pretty. I don't know if it's like in a time stasis field on his lapel or what. From from my understanding, at least from a behind the scenes perspective, they did use actual celery and then they had to replace it every time they shot because it would rot. Eventually, Eventually, they just went with a fake celery stalk. So they wouldn't have to keep replacing it. Poor Peter. That must have smelled awful. Yeah. I can't abide celery. Like <laughs> sometimes in a soup, like after it's been cooked until it's like mush. Okay. Or like sometimes you put like a little bit of celery salt or something in food to season it. I can deal with that. But like, raw celery or fresh cut celery or like crunchy celery that's kind of undercooked in something awful 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 stuff stop well, what would you t- using it what would you choose as your decorative vegetable um i don't know maybe like an asparagus stalk or you know well take the tartus go back to the 80s use asparagus instead of celery <laughs> yeah but you know, but at least it's a, it's an explanation. Broccoli, of, maybe mm. broccoli. Uh, but at least it's it's an attempt to explain the celery. Yeah, and I I will give this this cereal that, and also we get an actual good look at the two hearts of the doctor as the as a part of the story is the androids are programmed to kill anyone that's human unless they have these special belt buckles. That show that they are with Zek. And the, the, the doctor takes a gamble. Maybe I'm not human enough that the androids won't kill me. And we get this very predator-like x-ray of the doctor showing the two hearts, which I think is actually pretty cool. Yeah, that was a really neat scene of him just hoping that his Time Lord physiology would save the day. And it did. And again, it plays into the rest. Like he says, he can hold more air in his lungs than a human can, so he can get down to the to the lower caves and get the the bat's milk. And then we get these weird the the weird military guys who are sort of working for Jack, sort of working for Morgus, because they do certain actions for Jack. And he pays them in the drug, which he takes back to Morgus, who sells it to the people. To the point where, like, 
the drug is almost currency. Even the president well, gets on it. It's like, yeah, hey, our people need that drug. They want that drug. And you're our major supplier of the drug. Yeah, I mean, this is really an early version of what happens in the Canto Bite bit of Last Jedi, you know? It's like this whole story is basically just war profiteers are going to profit no matter who is fighting the war. Morgus is just a businessman. So, yeah, Jack has personal beef with Morgus. But Morgus doesn't really have personal beef with Jack. Jack's just in the way. Morgus just wants to make money. Jack actually did him a favor by making the drug more rare. So he can charge a premium for it. Mm. So Morgus is playing both sides because he gets the government to fund the military operation to defeat Jack. But he doesn't want to defeat Jack because Jack is the one making the drug sell for a higher premium by creating the false scarcity. So he also funds the gun runners that keep Jack, you know, stocked up with weapons for his android army. To which they, that's where the Doctor and Perry come in because they believe that these two are gun smugglers. Yeah. So it yeah. turns out that, like, even though Jack hates Morgus, Jack wouldn't be able to get guns if Morgus wasn't paying people to smuggle guns to Jack. Yeah, and even the the military guys, they don't like Jack, they don't like Morgus, they don't even like each other. But because when one guy questions him, the one military guy, like, force feeds his own man a cyanide pill. It's probably, yeah, I mean, I, I did they say specifically it was cyanide? Because I thought it was, like, concentrated. They just said a pill that will kill you instantly if you bite on it. Yeah, I thought it was, like, you know, concentrated, whatever the, the stuff they're mining, you know. Probably, because, I'm just using cyanide because that's the usual go-to for these things. Yeah. But yeah, yeah he, like, he drags him he drags him out to the typical British quarry set and <laughs> shoves him toward a cliff and tries to force feed him a a death pill. But the the thing is though is that these people none of them really realize through, you know, most of this story even that they're all being played by the same guy. And that guy is just a greedy little worm who wants money. Yeah. That feels like an insult to worms because worms actually have like a purpose. You know? And they like help with fertilization and stuff, you know? And it's really weird because Jack, 
thinking he's saving the Doctor and Perry, replaces them with Android copies. But somehow, because they didn't die, because it was a setup, he thinks the president is working with Jack, which is why Morgus kills the president. And then he puts himself in charge because he's the head of this committee. Well, the president's dead. Too bad, so sad. Well, looks like I'm the head of this committee that's directly under him. Guess I'm in charge now. Yeah. It feels Which, like he just he just it feels like he just needed an excuse to kill the president. I think that was that was really it. Because you see that he really doesn't like the president. You know, the president is is asking him questions like, oh, you know, how do you think the the miracle drug is working on me? You know, could you guess that I'm in my 70s or whatever? And he looks at the guy who looks, you know, at least 65 or whatever. And he's like, I wouldn't guess you even 50. And I'm like, really? Because I don't know how old that actor was, but he's you're not you're not given 50. You know, (laughs) like. No offense to the actor or anything, but I'm pretty sure he was older than that at the time they filmed this. And the actor that plays Morgus, John Normington, is given weird directions. Like, he's obviously trying to do a Shakespearean soliloquy, but he does it directly at the camera. Oh, yeah, the the actor playing Morgus just kept looking directly into the camera, and I wanted to ask the, the director, like, why is he looking directly into the camera? Fourth wall break. And he's saying, I don't trust him. He doesn't trust me. What am I going to do? Why am I talking to you? <laughs> yeah, like, why are you talking to the little children at home? Like, maybe the master can get away with that on Doctor Who? Even the but, doctor can get away with that. Yeah, the doctor can get away with that sometimes. The master can occasionally get away with that, but anybody else needs to be talking to, like, a communicator screen or something. And, again, it's it's just awkward direction that the actor did not understand. That is my understanding of of that scene. So he thought, I'll just talk to the camera. And, as we said, because of the way Doctor Who is filmed, they just kept that take in. Yeah, I don't I don't understand cuz this this guy as far as I I understand like he was a great actor and he even came back to Doctor Who and Torchwood later, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's primarily I mean he he was in the the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know, a, a lot of their their productions. Um but most uh, most people know him for his work on television. So, like, it wasn't like this was his first television role, you know? Mm-hmm. So, this had to be something the director told him. Because this was not like they had just brought him off an RSC stage and put him in front of a television camera for the first time. This guy is a a professional who has been on lots of television before. Not his first outing. 
Why is he doing this? It is like so said, awkward. I think something got lost in translation between what the director wanted to do, or what the writer wanted, what the director wanted, and what the actor was told. Yeah, like, was it in the stage direction of the script, like, deliver as if giving a Shakespearean monologue? You know? Or, you mm. know, a Shakespearean soliloquy? But they didn't mean, like, literally look into the camera, which is how you would deliver that most of yeah. the time. Yeah, when you're if doing you that were on stage, giving a soliloquy. Yeah, if you're doing a soliloquy in a Shakespearean play, you're looking at the audience. You're, you're on stage, you're looking to the audience. I mean, sometimes that is one way to deliver that, depending on what the director wants. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes actors will perform it that way. And a lot of times in early television productions, they would look directly into the camera when delivering the soliloquies. So that is a very typical early way to do that. Modern Shakespearean actors when doing that will typically do different things um, because sometimes it can be off-putting to an audience but um, it just again depends on the direction and what the actor chooses but in early television that was very common when filming Shakespearean plays so it could have been like it was in the TV direction, like, you know, this is how Morgus speaks. But maybe they didn't intend him to give the delivery directly to the camera. But as as a modern audience watching it, it's very off-putting because you don't see that often, even in classic Doctor Who. Yeah. That the villain just turns directly to the audience and like gives their direct like plan to the audience <laughs> um and it comes off very much like the bit in futurama where the devil is like you know robot devil is like you can't have your people just tell how they feel that makes me feel angry <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah, for some reason, Morgus decides once he killed the president, I'm going to Andrazani Minor and making sure all this goes to plan. And it's the minute a very he's much Thanos, fine, I'll do it myself kind of moment. <laughs> like, and like the minute he gets on the world, he gets a call from his assistant saying, yeah, I talked to the other members of the council. Uh, we're, you're out. I'm now in charge. And shout out to his, like, weird little lackey woman. <laughs> like, Timon, I think her name is. Mm -hmm. Who just keeps wandering in and going like, Oh dear, did you kill the president? Well, that's gonna harm our stock prices. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just this weird little blonde woman who keeps wandering in. Like... <laughs> Again, to use an, S an MCU reference, it's like just his version of Pepper Potts just keeps wandering in like, great, I have to clean up this mess now. <laughs> like, Let's be honest, this is not the strangest thing you've ever seen me do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like... <laughs> Killing someone is not the weirdest thing you've seen me do. <laughs> yeah, it's like... 
You know that she's just like the CFO of Morgus Corp or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Who just like wanders in going like, great, what crisis do I have to deal with today? Oh, you've pushed the president out the window. All right, I'll uh, I'll call a press meeting. He's been very depressed lately and uh, was possibly drunk, and the cleaners left the window open. Okay, I can handle this. All right, you know. Like- <laughs> <laughs> but it's like like she was waiting for him to get off world. Okay, well, you're off world. You've technically abandoned your post. Uh, you're out. <laughs> Yeah, and then you, and then next time we see her, she's just sitting in his chair in his office. He's like, why are you in my chair? Oh, yeah, I've taken over your company. Don't bother coming back. Bye! You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I guess that everyone's a villain in this story, except for the Doctor and Perry. And it's like, Like, the last, I want to say the last seven to ten minutes is a race. Because it's like it's like they're trying to fit an entire episode's worth of plot in, like, ten minutes. Because this is always like, the problem with these old Doctor Who serials, because they, they pad out the episode so much. Because it's like, well, we've got enough plot for an hour-long show. But we need to fill two hours with it. And then they get the pacing wrong. And then it gets to that last, you know, 24-minute episode or whatever. And they go, oh, crap, we dragged our feet for three episodes. Now we've got to, like, get to the actual plot. So the point is, you know, Doctor has to go down to the caves. Uh, uh, Zek, Jack gives him this oxygen hose saying here here this should have enough oxygen to get you there and back and when the doctor uses it it's empty just kidding (laughs) because he wants to keep perry he wants to because he believes perry is going to fall in love with him because uh angel of music symphony of the night Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I don't like that play. <laughs> I mean, that reason is Andrew Lloyd Webber, but there are other reasons I don't like that play. <sighs> the sequel the... would be the best after that one, but that's neither here nor yeah. there. But uh, we got you know, we are ramming through an entire episode of plot in like ten minutes, because like here comes Morgus, here comes the army. Jack and Morgus are having a fight. Jack jams Morgus's head between two electrical turbines, electrocuting him to death. And then we find out, then here comes, like, there's a whole subplot that we didn't even talk about, about about, uh, the original prisoner coming back and telling his superior, oh, hey, that guy you've been telling all our secrets to, he's a robot. He works for Jack. And then Jack, and then the robot immediately figures out what's going on, and they're still trying to pretend that nothing's going on, and it's all crazy, and it's all wacky. Yeah, so the there's, there's like a robot rebellion, and like then there's like a firefight and soldiers, and yeah, and then like like Jack the- kills more. Jack kills Morgus. 
One of the soldiers kills Jack. The androids kill the soldier. And then Jack kind of falls into the androids. I'm saying, hold me. Hold me. As he I dies. I don't want to die alone. Yeah, at one point his face mask comes off and you get the Phantom of the Opera reveal with like, oh no, he's got makeup on his face that makes him look scarred. How could anyone ever love him? Eh, we're being ableist and weird. You know. Um, even Yeah, even by BBC, this was eh, not the best. And then the doctor finally comes back after milking the bat and coming back up with no air to grab Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Skywalker! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, all your sci-fi heroes have milked a weird animal at some point. Just deal with it. This is 84. We're in a post-Star Wars world. Yeah. So, um, like, like that's some kind of the cute whole... cute young blonde guy milking a weird sci-fi animal. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, like, that's kind of the reason they haven't left yet. Because it's like, they need the cure. Otherwise, they would have already been gone because when they realize there's villains on both sides here. So he gets the cure. He grabs Perry. He, they... He runs for the TARDIS, and in the most Doctor Who moment of this serial, reaches into its pocket to pull out the TARDIS key and drops one of the vials of the bat's milk. Well, I'm dead. <laughs> Opens the TARDIS, sets the automatic pilot to get the hell out of there. One vial of bat's milk left, and again... This is what the doctor does. The doctor sacrifices himself by giving the bat's milk to Perry so she can live. And the Perry wakes up and she's like, oh, doctor, I feel so much better now. And he's like, well, thank goodness the cure wasn't a lie. <laughs> now only one of us has to die. Oh, by the way, the planet that we just left, it's kind of exploding behind us. So everybody that was left there kind of dying now. Because uh, remember how we said there were, like, mud explosions or something? Yeah, th those are happening. They were they were timed to go off right behind. Yeah. And the beauty... Okay. I love I, the I just, I just have to say I just have to say one thing about all those mud explosions. Because mm -hmm. they're not really mud explosions. They're just, like, you know charges set in a quarry that go boom and i felt so bad for peter davison because i really he almost lost his sonic screwdriver and not the metal one <laughs> well yeah that but the thing is is that he's so close to some of those explosions and i just remember that like on the original Star Trek, being so close to some of those explosions, that's what cost Leonard Nimoy part of his hearing, because they never gave the actors ear protection. Ugh. And I don't know if they had gotten better in England, at least, by the time they were filming that. At least it was outside and not on an enclosed set, so maybe the, the impact wasn't as bad. But... Like, hopefully they had given, because a lot of the actors on some of these old sci-fi shows ended up, like, pretty much all of the original Star Trek cast 
and um, some of the people on a lot of the old British sci-fi shows too ended up with like uh, hearing loss or really bad tinnitus from being near a lot of the explosions on set because they didn't think to give the actors hearing protection. Um, so I, I'm really hoping that Peter Davidson wasn't one of those people. And I just kept watching how close he was to a lot of these explosions. Like one blast goes off between his legs. That could yeah. have ended very badly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, if you happen to hear this and you're an actor and you're ever like on set near an explosion, please have some sort of uh, ear protection. They they make them now that are invisible to the camera. And please don't let your director tell you you cannot have ear protection near an explosion for a stunt because, oh, my God, your hearing is so important. Please protect it. Um, all right. All right. I will say one thing. I love the expanded universe of Doctor Who. I listen to the audio dramas. I enjoy the novels. But the beauty of this story is that it's supposed to be the second adventure the Doctor has with Perry. He barely knows her. He knows virtually nothing other than her name is short for a very long made-up word. And he still sacrifices himself for her. I am very grateful that there are more adventures out there through audio and written mediums that have the Fifth Doctor and Perry go on more adventures. Great, wonderful, they deserve to have more adventures together. But I do think that those existing kind of cheapen this ending because it's supposed to be someone selflessly sacrificing themselves for someone they barely know. Like I said, this is only Perry's second adventure with the Doctor. And the Doctor, being the Doctor, is going to lay his life on the line. That's just what he does. Like yeah, said, he, even, I, he even tells her, you know, because she wakes up and she's like, you know, what, what happened? And he says, like, oh, good, the, the cure. Like, basically, oh, good, the cure wasn't a lie. He didn't lie to us about that. Because... Basically, Jack lied about everything else during this story. Mm -hmm. um, and so the doctor was taking it on faith that the bat milk would even work. And it's a last ditch attempt as he flies the TARDIS away that he even gives the, the one remaining vial to Perry. He doesn't I mean, know if that, it's going to work. There's that moment where he's crashing the ship after they arrest him. He's saying, I have to get Perry out of here because I put her here. Yeah. And so he's so happy in that moment to see that it did work and he did save her life. Mm. And she's like, you know, what happened? Why aren't you getting better? And he explains that there was only one vial left and he gave it to her and she's horrified. And she's like, well, what happens now? And he's like, well, if I'm lucky regeneration but i'm so weak that i i don't know if i have the energy left i might regenerate i don't know it feels different this time yeah and, and then 
then we get what I think is one of the better bits in the classic series regenerations. And you get all of the Doctor's companions from that point. You get Nyssa and Tegan and Turlo, which we haven't really talked about yet, and Adric and Chameleon, and all of them are saying, don't die. The universe needs you. Do you know what your enemies will do if you die? You can't die, Doctor. And in beautiful, beautiful, the master comes in. No, doctor, you will die. Die, doctor, die. <laughs> yeah, and that, that wonderful Ainley laugh as he's taunting the doctor, you know. Oh, Anthony Ainley. Die, die, go, yeah. you know. Th this is the end kind of thing. Yeah. And I I love it because it's, it's so menacing. And that that taunting thing of like you can feel him kind of fading away, um, because it slowly, uh, you know, the master's voice slowly overwhelms the companions of all these words of hope from the companions, and then you get the master being like, "No, you will die." You know, this is and this is the end. His face getting bigger, overwhelming the other, not only their voices, but their faces. Yeah, and it's just, you know, all these, like, tiny little pictures of the of the companions swirling around. It's his memories of it. And then the master just, like, growing larger and larger and his voice booming out. And it's so well done and so well edited. And everything, because, of course, we don't have the effects that we do now to make it the grand, sparkly, explosion-y spectacle uh, of the modern regenerations. Um, so we get that instead. Yeah. And as you're As you're sitting there wondering which side wins... Uh, we get that wonderful, you know, pop up into frame from uh, Colin Baker. Yeah, uh, the Undertaker sit up, as I would call it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the 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 number of times they use the gong in this episode for as 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 atmospheric music, it's like I know this is 1984. I know that The Undertaker did not become The Undertaker till 1991, but I'm expecting him to show up. <laughs> it w was it the same sound of the, the cloister bells? I don't know, but it's just like this gong. Like, if, if you ever heard The Undertaker's theme song, it's well, the same yeah, gong yeah, sound I mean, effect. <laughs> okay, well, th yeah, that's that's slightly different, I think, than the the cloister bells but yeah it might have it might have been uh i don't know if they changed the the sound effect um might have been the cloister, the cloister bell, i don't know the cloister bell since then um you know and and then i i love those first words between the sixth doctor and perry you know, she she says, Doctor, and he says, well, you know, of course, who were you expecting? And she goes, I, 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 you know, because she, she's so shocked. She's never seen the regeneration before. And 
he says like, oh, three three eyes in the same breath makes you seem rather narcissistic or something like that. And which is just such a perfect kind of doctor thing to say. So it's it's a good introduction line. But of course, you mentioned before about them giving Nicola Bryant all the sexy outfits and uh, I love I love the story behind this too because as Peter Davison is there he's giving his final speech as the doctor and Nicola Bryant's cleavage is in center frame yeah because and, Perry is holding him as he's dying but of course the the outfit they have her in for the episode is this kind of like not really midriff bearing but it is kind of like this tied top kind of illusory effect so it shows a lot of cleavage her particular outfit in this episode like even more so than some of her other ones and yeah it is a rather prominent because of the way she's bent over holding him and looking down at him, it, it is a, a, you know, and and I don't think that anybody was really thinking of it in those terms because, you know, if if you're just holding somebody in that way, that's just the way your body's going to be, you know? Mm-hmm. But so it was really just be... more a function of the costume that they gave her. And, and and Peter Davidson would say in interviews years later that he really couldn't even look at Nicola because if he did in that scene, he would be looking at her cleavage. It, it It's a little bit unfortunate. It is a beautiful scene. Yeah. Um, That was unfortunately... A bit undone because of the way they they picked the the costume, uh, and for the reasons they apparently picked the costume. Um, but interestingly, it's it's kind of fascinating to talk about the the fifth Doctor and Perry in terms of the classic series because apparently. Perry was one of the inspirations for Rose Tyler. Maybe even down to the kind of sexier way she dressed. It is kind of interesting that David Tennant found a lot of inspiration initially in building his version of the Doctor off of the Fifth Doctor. And then the companion was apparently built uh, in in some parts off of Perry, who was the, the final companion for the Fifth Doctor. It's really fascinating to me, when I was watching this, mm-hmm. uh, this serial, and, you know, everybody talks about this as one of the, you know... The all-time greats. (laughs) Yeah, one of the all-time greats and definitely the best of, you know, Davidson's run. Am I the only one that 
wasn't particularly enamored of this story. No, you're not. I feel the same way. I think it's because it had the hype coming to it. And it just, the hype overwhelmed the episode. But it also suffers through a lot of what classic Doctor Who suffers through is that you take a story, you have maybe half an hour or an hour worth of story, and you need to stretch that out to two hours. Because this is serialized storytelling. We happen to have a new episode every week. And it, the cliffhangers are good. Yeah, the cliffhangers were very good. The cliffhangers are good. The cliffhanger of the uh, the execution, the execute, the cliffhanger of the spaceship crashing, all good. Good cliffhangers for the for the episodes. The cliffhanger of the end with with Colin Baker and the regeneration, very good. But this is forty five minutes worth of story stretched out into two hours, which falls into the lot of the. A lot of which, you know, it's the problem of classic Doctor Who. This was not meant to be watched in one sitting. This was meant to be watched once a week. And maybe you forgot what happened last week because it's been seven days. And there was no reruns and there was no streaming. So you had to go by that by the five minute recap we get at the beginning of every episode. It was just the five minutes of the previous episode. But even watching each episode on its own like i was having trouble following the plot of just like the first episode it is an it's a serial where it feels like so much happens and then you know i i also read the the recaps you know shout out to people who do like fan wikis and stuff like that because shout out are... shout out to the tart the tardis wiki which we get all our information from yeah i mean tardis wiki and people who help keep wikipedia running and uh, you you people are the true heroes because you know bless you but um you know i i always like keep those with me to make sure I'm not missing any major plot points and everything. I would have not been able to understand these episodes without those recaps because these are episodes in which both very little happens, but it seems like so much is happening that you feel like you've missed something. Yeah. There's a lot of movement and dialogue going on on screen, but when you actually distill it down to what is happening it's only about three or four sentences of actual plot. Yeah, like I said, you could probably cut this down to about 30, 45 minutes and miss nothing. Yeah, I do respect the story for being like Doctor Who visits the twin planets of late capitalism and discovers why that's bad. And 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 they say Doctor Who isn't political. Yeah, I mean, like most science fiction, Doctor Who has always been political. And if you've missed that, you haven't been paying attention. But this one just... I liked the acting in it. I thought all the actors, you know, brought their A-game. And I think if it had been edited down a little bit, it would have been... If this was know, a two-parter... And not a four-parter. 
Yeah, maybe they could have gotten four parts out of it. I think this would have been a really tight, like, single hour. Yeah, I mean, for the classic series, yeah, two parts. Yeah. But, you know, if you if you, if you kind of cut this down to just one one hour, you know, like you said, about 45 minutes or so, you're you're doing good. I understand why people will love this episode. It is such a change to the to what was going on with the fifth doctor at the time. And it also flips the script on the typical doctor who formula of land on planet. There's a quarry base under siege formula of classic doctor who, and just hits you with all of the dark and all of the gritty and everyone's a bad guy and everyone's trying to kill the doctor but we can't leave because reasons. But it falls into that that like, like I said, it falls into that trap. But uh, that classic who falls into where it's stretch, stretching out a story far, far more than it needed to, just to fill a time slot. And uh, if you're if this is one of your favorites, I apologize. I get it. I get why this is loved. I get why this is so so high on so many people's lists i think if we had grown up with this mm. it would be a a much more nostalgia hit and i think if we had grown up more with doctor who in the classic era rather than I mean, I, both of us having come to the show a little later i mean and again we're, really we're, getting into it in the revival we're toddlers at this point when this show yeah. was airing. So we wouldn't be, you know, by the time we were at the point where we could watch something like this, the show was already on its last legs. Like, yeah, yeah we're I at mean, the, we, we, we really came into it, like, maybe with the Fox movie or just reruns, you know? Yeah. Because it was in, already canceled by the time we were old enough to understand Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, we're reaching the era where BBC was actively trying to cancel this show. The show had been on for 20-plus years. The new heads of BBC hated science fiction, and they wanted it gone from their network, and they were going to put the blame on Colin Baker. But we'll talk more about that next time. But, yeah, uh, I understand why this is loved, but it didn't do it for me, and I apologize to anyone who considers this their favorite. I think that's but all they can I will say, Peter Davison, in spite of the celery, possibly has the second best outfit of the classic Who era. I mean, Tom Baker's is iconic. Peter Davison, you know, really strong second place. The cricket outfit does it for that you, huh? That cricket, that cricket outfit with the with the question mark, you know, collar and the you know the trainers and the i mean he caught a dashing figure in that outfit gotta say i mean he wasn't a bad looking young man at the time i mean he could have sadly at this point in his life he was starting to recede a little and, you, and they did their best to cover it up but you can kind of still see it yeah it doesn't matter yeah but yeah you know peter davidson does i think peter davidson deserves more respect than he does get at least from a modern to looking back era. 
And maybe if there were more episodes like Caves that were a little bit more tightened up, I probably would look into this era more, but is what it is. Yeah. Agreed. So, so yeah, next time, Colin Baker, and that will be next month as we look at the Colin Baker era. As for next week, it is the beginning of May, so we are going to go back to that galaxy far, far away for another Star Wars episode. Taking our first dive into animated Star Wars. We are going to be watching Star Wars The Clone Wars. Uh, I have watched some episodes, and uh, Kiki, you have watched none, so this would be a first time for you. Um, I I tried to watch uh, a couple of episodes at the beginning of the series, you know, like the first two or three episodes, and it didn't take. So we'll we'll see how it takes this time. So yeah, so uh, we're going to get into the Clone Wars. And uh, come back for that, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye! Bye! Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic, Twitter at Rewatch the Magic, and of course, new episodes every week at RewatchingTheMagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at aclu.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area.